Uh, Jeremy, I want to welcome you. You are the director, uh, a director at Asafron Capital Partners, and you have partners, and you are also known, I think, for a couple of other reasons to begin with. One is that you were head of uh, alternative data at Bloomberg Markets, uh, at Bloomberg, I should say, and also um, you were uh, you are a person with 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, so you have a gigantic social <laughs> media footprint. And I think you're also interesting to me because you're both an investor, but you're really, in, in some ways, an entrepreneur at heart. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, it's really kind of you, Michael. Um, I think the following happened a little bit last. So um, I, I did uh, come from an entrepreneur. My dad's an entrepreneur. So after being a banker for almost a day, feeling the itch to start some companies was definitely there and i've been involved either as a founder accelerator or investor decade now uh gosh maybe even more at this point great uh, confluence of those uh joined full-time uh, some great folks over at azifran it's been about five months now and we're, we're a seed firm um Medtech, IoT, and Enterprise B2B. And there is a very large data component, which folds back into one of the things I'm, I guess, at this point in life, pretty well known for uh, having been the uh, head of alternative data at Bloomberg and doing a few other things. Um, I, I like data. I think, you know, it's almost obvious to say like- IT or block. Sort of wrapped into everything, but I think the uses of data is a nice specialty to have because it's, it's just so transformational and important. Is the, is the phrase or the definition of big data, is that meaningful anymore? Is everything big data? You know, what's funny, Michael, is sometimes, sometimes we talk, talk about small. Having too much data um, actually can be useful or cannot be useful. Just having a few data points. On some. For example, we knew everybody on this call had COVID. You know, maybe one of us does, maybe one of us does. And is that big data? That's small data. But the action points I could take as a marketer to sell you, uh, you know, whatever you need medically or maybe a sleep device or maybe some maybe a blanket uh, would certainly be useful. So in a way, big data doesn't even matter now. Small data, any data that you can have that makes a useful forecast can actually be very useful. And, and uh, interesting you should say that. I could have used you last night. I, could, I, I had no chloroseptic. I had no cough drops. <laughs> Um, oh man! I, I, apparently, Aspergum is out of business. I or you, we couldn't find Aspergum, which was always my go-to for terrible sore throats. But um, no, it's it's interesting. You're right. It's sort of what we know about someone at the point of the transaction or at the point of the action, I guess. Um, but I, I think you're you're really an interesting guy in in a lot of ways. Number one, you come from uh, a family where your father was an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, no, I mean, starting from first principles, um, my grandparents in, uh, in the, gosh, over, over 100 years ago at this point, they went to Mexico and started some overtime, of course, decades, of course, manufacturing companies, metals recycling companies, and uh, I was always encouraged that as to think about uh, building companies myself. Now, graduating in the 90s to uh, an obvious uh, engineering firm uh, i tried to intern a few times now chemical 3m i just couldn't i'm just not a cubicle in the 90s in a cubicle didn't seem like a lot of fun so interesting consulting and becoming a tech person um, but yeah i think the informative vision of 
having a family of entrepreneurs and my dad was having always impressed me the value of trust and transparency and really trying to make the world a better place and what better way to do it than locally having employees um, we can debate models social dem demographic models and all kinds of stuff but at the end of the day of 20 to 50 or how humans live most how can you extract and, and give the most influence to people, giving them, you know, money, <laughs> employing them with a direct salary and locally. So I've always wanted to run a business or, or be part of a, frankly, a smaller, smaller team. Never, I've worked at some big companies, but I've never had hundreds of people report to me. I like being a part of, you know, a smaller tribe, if you will. What did, what did you learn specifically from your dad? Did you learn that, for example, an entrepreneur, um, there's kind of a family that a company can become that there are there are really obligations to the workers. Um, I ask that because I feel like maybe we've gotten really far away from that. Um, that that is not really part of maybe it's becoming part of the conversation again. But but um, is that something he ever talked about with you? Yeah, Michael, because, I think um, he always felt like he was a fiduciary and that it was important to keep everybody through the cycle types of risks employed. And I, and I really feel like that, that, that hug of a big brother is really what I learned from him. I mean, he's in his eighties. He's still every day. He's, he's so grateful. He's a great man. I learned a lot from him. No, he's perfect. He has a squad just like I do, but in terms of like how, if I can take anything from him, I think acting everything and just looking at what, it's having a great family. It's having friends, and it's making sure people have what they need. And do you have more than others? Help them. Are you going to help them directly? I think the best value lesson I learned from him was the strict caring of the people in your purview. And, and that to me is something I really carried for. Whether it's my wife, my son, you know, my circle of friends, um, or as a friend, the firm. I always want to help everybody that's around me. So I think that personal obligation to make sure people have what they need what I learned from him. And I do think that you know, Twitter, the blockchain, you're only as good as what you produce the last hour. I do think that there's some great things about micro things about being recognized for micro tasks. But having said that, we are drifting a, a bit away from everybody having, having a custodian, whether that's government, whether that's a direct employer, it is causing us to be a little bit adrift, perhaps. And and as somebody who's been an entrepreneur, you've had, um, I think, three fintech companies yourself. Is that right? That you've been involved in so a couple of exits. Um, how do you bring... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious how you convey that to the companies you invest in, or if you do, or if, if you even have those conversations. Is um, Another way to ask that question is how important is um, is it for founders in particular to show that they care about the people who work for them? Is that necessary? I, I think it's a really important edge for myself and for the partners <laughs> on the team at Azafran. They both have run many businesses. They both have had great M&A exits. And then you talk to a founder, having been a founder myself, having failed, that ability to speak freely and be transparent, <laughs> authentic, I think is, is a little bit helpful. 
you know, certain VCs that are academically trained, that are brilliant, but never, never run a company, don't necessarily have that facility around understanding the challenge, the pain of day to day, knowing the forecast, knowing what it's like to have a product massively delayed. You know, I've been in those seats, so I try to be very empathetic. I mean, we want out new outcomes. All of we're fiduciary at heart too. How do things can go wrong? And sometimes they're in your control, sometimes they're not. Whenever I speak to companies, and I speak to several a day, whether in our portfolio, whether somebody I've invested in the past or somebody I'm looking to invest in, I hope that they see in me somebody that's been there and done that. You know, frankly, isn't afraid to If I learned anything from my dad, fail and it's okay. You pull yourself up, fail the same way. But you don't hide failure. I think, if anything, you know, when I talk to um, companies, what I find most interesting is the most successful companies I've invested in over communicate. They send you lots of updates and they're never afraid to talk to you. And usually the news is good. That's probably why they're communicating with you. But even if the news is bad, they're not afraid to tell you. And I think that's the true mark of a, a real investor or an advisor. It's not somebody that you avoid. It's somebody that you seek help from, even if it's just to pound your chest because you're doing well. Um, so I think that over communication is something that I appreciate from founders. It's not hiding errors, it's not <laughs> hiding mistakes, because that all comes up, whether it's a product failure, client, your investors are going to find out eventually. You might as well get ahead of it and try to risk manage through it. And, you know, I wanted to, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I know you were at, at um, Anderson Consulting after the University of Texas at Austin. Um, you also were a banker for eight years at JP Morgan. Um, I think you met your wife there. Is that right? Did you guys meet at JP Morgan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my wife is still there. there. She'd be me bringing it up, and she has a different last name. So hopefully nobody can try and relate it. But she's <laughs> actually been there more than two. I'm, I'm super proud of her. She's done, she's wow. done great things there. Yeah. And she's in tech too, I understand. So, so yeah, it's, she's on the thing. It's market side. So she sees IPF. IP she works on equity. Um, I've always been more of a coverage. I was a coverage banker, so I tended to gravitate more to M and A, and you know, frankly, whatever a company needs in their life cycle. But as an industrials banker, it was typically trying to help buy growth and trying to sell legacy assets or do LBOs. So I tended to do mostly M and A. Some see a lot of ideas in the industrial space. Right, right. But you know what I wanted to drill down on was. Um, what led you to take the job in alternative data at Bloomberg? Because that was a case where you had to leave a company that I think you you loved or had strong feelings of. Uh, uh, you you had been there from the beginning, I believe, and um, you had to pivot. And you said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into a, a corporate job now. Bloomberg's a you know fairly unique corporation, but nonetheless, that must have been really hard. But I bring it up in this context because. You know, you're a successful guy. You went on there from that to do all these companies, to join this, you know, these partnerships. I think that founders, entrepreneurs sometimes forget that successful people have failed. And it might, in fact, be the defining characteristic of successful people. It's easy to forget. I, I think that's totally fair, Michael. Um, for me, it's always flowing like water. And I, I, I'm a disciple of Bruce Lee. Um, you know, I, I enjoy thinking, thinking about, about philosophy and meditation. That for my dad, he studied at an ashram. 
Uh, my parents met in Israel. Real. You know, we're, we're very global people. Um, we travel, travel a lot. Um, I'm very globally minded. Um, and failure is okay, you know, whether it's uh, an immigrant in this country, somebody that's new to, to the, the U.S. US or not. I think failure is just something that it, it hardens you and makes you stronger. Don't keep failing the same way. I think if you can learn from your mistakes and keep going, you'll do great. So to go be between banking to fintech uh, to, to Bloomberg, the, the journey for me was in 2012, I joined uh, a few colleagues from City into creating a capital market setup tool the ACE portal. And what we did now 10 years ago was it's really hard for private companies um, to get liquidity for their investors and some of their key employees. Um, a, a really brilliant guy that many people know in FinTech, Barry Silbert, created a and second market ended up providers of liquidity to a lot of private companies and it was tied up with we built up something that was a little bit similar called ACE, and we tied up exchange. And to some extent, we did private companies, but key assets. So as, as you probably know well, hedge funds and private equity funds and other funds are governed by lockups and a lot of different reasons why they're not super liquid. They're more liquid now. Um, so we created this liquid exchange um, enterprise tool that um, stood up for a few years and then was bought by funds. Having had uh, you know, a modest exit on the first time, I realized I love the tech, I love the industry, I really like the markets. Business is really hard. So <laughs> I'm not convinced that being an entrepreneur per se it depends on what you're shooting for. If it's a small company, but having had that experience, I'm fortunate enough to spend some time with some others was the um, chief revenue officer at a data company called Estimize. I had never really data until I was at Estimize. I did notice in a lot of the companies like GE and Northrop Grumman that I helped advise companies that were much more IT information and services. With a, you know, heavy, heavy cost of goods. So I started to see like those and big companies are excited about software and excited about services, somewhat getting into it. So in the back of my mind, I knew data was going to be something that was important. Um, in 2015, when I joined Estimize as CRO, I saw lots of quant funds using data in new and unique ways. And Estimize was a crowdsourced tool to collect data from from retail traders and from institutions and what their expectations are for. So I, I, I know I'm getting a longer answer, but the long answer for me is, once I had been off the grid and I wasn't in corporate, I realized nobody has the answers. You, you build your own path. If you build something useful, people will buy it. There's a lot of different ways to make money. There's a lot of different ways to guide your career. So for me, seven years ago now, it was being an entrepreneur in the data space. Now, data companies are very hard to build from the ground up. Collecting data and selling data and building a big company is hard. So it's hard for me to say out loud, but... Once I realized it was never going to be a big company and I wasn't the founder, I thought, well, why don't I stay in data, but maybe I should take a pause, you know, going to a corporate Very useful thing. Um, so I sort of fell into knowing some people at Bloomberg and um, was able to get into this self data role where I spent three years meeting a ton of data companies, helping them potentially partner with Bloomberg. And uh, I thought it was a fascinating space. 
And then in the meantime, using some of my personal balance sheet, I ended up investing in, you know, a lot of companies um, as I'm looking back in my portfolio. Um, it sort of happened in ones and twos, and then it started to happen more frequently. But I'd find companies that either wanted me as an advisor or maybe an angel. And um, that took me on a path to start investing in more companies. And as you mentioned, Michael, um, I guess success has many fathers and mothers. So for on AngelList last year during COVID and opportunistically stood up a syndicate and we invested, uh, myself and two partners, in 14 companies, 2 million deployed into data-related companies. And, mm. you know, I think sometimes writing small checks is better than big checks. If you give somebody 100K and you spend a lot of time with them, you might have more skin in the game than doing 3 million, 5 million, 10 million. So being kind of a, an angel or a syndicate lead was a lot of fun. And then through that journey, I met the as a friend, which is where I am now. But, but, but just, just to cycle back, corporate startups, banking, they're all very different. They all have different puts and pluses and minuses. And I think for me, some of the curve and arc was building a family, you know, with my wife and kid, what's most important? Is it how you spend your time? And, and I think for me, there are seasons in life, much like any cycle where sometimes you're willing to take outsized massive risk. And sometimes it's better to be a little bit more risk adjusted. So a lot of my choices were really governed by what did I see as a status for myself and my family? And then what opportunities did I see in the market and what's the best way to activate them? And as a banker, you're probably working 80 to hundred hours a week. Maybe not so much now, maybe not so much during COVID doesn't leave you a lot of space to be a family and it doesn't leave you a lot of time to be a father. And for me, fatherhood started nine years ago with the birth of our first son. And I thought being an entrepreneur is great. You know, you're working all the time and it's a little bit risky, but if one day you want to just stay home and play with your kid, you have that latitude because you're your own boss in many ways. Your clients are your boss. Maybe your investors are your boss, but that flexibility was important to me. Maybe I should take a pause. Um, I hope that answers that no, question. No, I, can, I, can, I, think you're, I think you're on point. I, and, you know, because I can't talk today, I appreciate your, uh, your, uh, <laughs> your being so articulate about this. Um, I wanted to ask you something. You know, um, my, my questions might seem a little atypical. I, I apologize for that. But you had a situation with a company where, and I'll let you fill in the details, where you decided to give 20% of the company to um, your technology partner, I assume your software partner uh, yeah. in Brooklyn. And yeah. so I just want to put this in the context of a company that I just um, spoke with that I think is very interesting in the FinTech space, consumer space. Um, and they have an app like everyone does. Um, the app needs a lot of work. Um, there's something there, maybe something very big and interesting, but it's it's clear, you know, they may have spent, I think they've raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. They may have put that into the development. But um, but my, my question to you as an entrepreneur and as an investor is what are what is the risk reward there? Because I've I've done the same thing with companies where you're really and what I found is it can really work well. Um, but you are very beholden to an outside force, to an outside company. And if, if that relationship goes south or even if there's friction, then you, know, then you have real friction in your business that you can't really control. So 
what led to that decision? Maybe fill in some of the details for us, because I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs face. They can't do it all themselves. When is it time to go outside? And most importantly, when is it time to use your equity in that situation? Oh, that's a fantastic question. First principles up is the tech type of business is it? If tech is what's required for you to compete, that's really your governing principle. You have house. So as a friend, capital, for example, we focus on applied tech, so meaning the team, the technology, really important. It's got to be something that's unique and feature rich. The company, we tend to invest in companies that some sales and business help or marketing help or to go cross border. So for example, the deep tech is all from the, from the beginning. So we would never want to outsource that. Now, having said that to an entrepreneur or somebody that wants to build a new business, to me, it's okay if it's going to be a prototype, perhaps to invest equity or invest the time and money into it. Um, so I, I think the first question, question I always ask myself or somebody that comes to me with this, with this question is what's, what's the differentiator? Because, you know, Uber's a cute idea executed incredibly well with the amazing technology. Could Uber have outsourced their tech to have GPS, logistics, coordination, and communication across, you know, buyers and sellers of their product, meaning drivers and, and passengers? To me, absolutely not. I've had a prototype that helped enable some black cars to, you know, be found by, by consumers, potentially. Uh, so in the case that you mentioned, Ad60 is, uh, is an agency in Brooklyn and uh, great people. We gave them equity in Ace Portal because we thought, you know, I was probably the closest technologist on was sales and business. So we knew that we didn't have building something. And frankly, without knowing a good CTO full time for us, I would almost say it was a partner in giving them that equity. So I think this resonates really deeply with because I get asked all the time my friends that are interested in building something and they're like, how do you find a CTO? And if you're already asking me that question, you're probably a tech company. You're probably going to be a, an interesting business that's digitally enhanced. So maybe you find an agency or a studio. Uh, so I think it comes back to the want to build and why are you building it? We see some amazing companies. On the phone today with several CEOs, we're thinking about investing in ranging from of uh, ultrasonic sensors for robotics. These are the type, the foundation and DNA have to be deep tech. Um, no, no question. Can you define that for us? In, in other words, it's sort of like big data. We hear it a lot now, but how do you define deep tech? Yeah, so, so to me, deep is, 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 a, is a product or service that's delivered with a, a modality that's a bit transformative, meaning um, if you're going to be looking at a, a radiation uh, of a person and all the x-rays and you want to take all of those, apply some machine learning and see if there's any with the human with some radiation exposure, for example, the heavy duty monitoring the x-rays, the scanning, all of that, that is, is fairly deep because it actually has a useful form. 
might be, you know, some sort of fusion or some sort of energy generator or, you know, I hate to say it, but or something crazy. That's kind of super deep tech. Applied deep tech is the area I like because it's something a bit out there that uses some science. So actually has a useful use case right now today. So, so is asteroid mining deep tech? I don't know. On it, maybe it's applied deep tech. I guess deep tech without the applied is like sounds really cool or not. Well, I know there was just a movie on uh, Netflix called Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio about mining asteroids. <laughs> it was actually a key to the plot point, but but yeah. um well it was I, I don't know i guess i guess it was, it's yeah it was good it i was going to say good. the parable there was really about global warming so i think there was a lot wrapped into uh how we're communicated to by our government anyway there was a lot of layers to that movie on a surface level my kid thought it was funny and entertaining on a deeper resonating human level certainly it's scary if you if you into it what's happening with them with and weather temperatures and power. Well, there's so much uh, dystopian, so many dystopian books and movies and podcasts. It's uh, it's hard to find one that that isn't dystopian. Um, it's so much become a part of our thinking. I don't know how you invest in that. I know some of the billionaires are um, are doing things like getting LASIK surgery so they can see in the apocalypse. Um, uh, <laughs> things like that, or or building houses, you know, secret houses and those sorts of things but that's not gonna help most of us. Um, what resonates with me, I, I wanted to, um, to close by asking you um, a question about your following. You have this big following on LinkedIn. By the way, when I connected with you, I didn't know you had a following. <laughs> I, I never look at that. I look at, I look at who's doing interesting things. So you looked interesting. And I think you actually had, a, um, had linked to something uh, that, that was really interesting, I thought. But why do you think what you're saying, what you're writing, what you're, you know, blogging about, uh, posting about, what, what do you think, why is it resonating with so many people? What, are, what, what is the nerve that you personally are hitting with your commentary? You know, I think for me, it's really just, I think very deeply about the context of where we are today and the context of where we're going to be within the next few years. So what, what, what most of my followers like to tell me is useful is trying to get on top of capital markets, what's happening in the market, what's happening in tech, and then making it tangible. So when, when I think about 2030 and beyond, I don't know anything about the metaverse or nuclear fusion that other people don't know. I'm not a scientist. I think it's making it tangible for what's happening in the next 18 months. Because I feel like people that I haven't talked to that I maybe worked with two decades ago will come you know, through the woodwork and be like, JPEGs, why are they selling for a million dollars? I don't understand this. Do you? And it gives me the chance to say, well, I'm not really sure, but people that like it think it's XYZ. And here's my take on it. So I, I think there's a comfort level in me, I hope, that's very authentic and approachable, either because I've worked with somebody or I'm not afraid to give my honest opinion because I don't have a puppet master above me in a way in the way that certain people do. So I'm pretty glib about whatever I need to say. So I think there's an approachability that I try to frame. Um, but the other is, um, I guess, my interests. I mean, the crossover between science and tech and the markets 
has never been more seminal. So I did see a little bit of an accelerant the last few years around we're stuck at home, people have COVID, people are scared. How are the markets trading? What does the Fed statement mean? That kind of just naturally put me a little bit more to the edge, perhaps the normal. Because five, six, seven years ago, I was a banker. So a lot of corporates in the space knew who I was and I interacted with them frequently. Then I moved into fintech, then angel investing, and now this sort of deep tech science overlay. So maybe it's just I've touched a lot of areas and that whole scaling multidiscipline thing is something that gets talked about a lot. I wish I were as smart or as good of a marketer as like an Elon Musk. Um, I, I'm obviously not, uh, or I'd be a trillionaire. Um, but I think the ability to untangle what the government's telling you, understand what the world, understand putting it all together, give a better that's what I'm trying to communicate. You know, I had a argument a bit with somebody I've known in the Bitcoin space for a long time. Full disclosure, I've owned Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some cryptos in and out many times over the last few years. I currently am on the sidelines. I'm more focused on tech and science. I do find it really interesting. But what we were arguing about was how much Bitcoin stocks one needs to own, given where we are in the Fed cycle. And I kind of just gave up. I'm not trying to optimize my portfolio. Sure. I like money. I'd like more money. I just want to build a better world. Like that's really, really like what I'm about. about. I'm in my forties. I try to give back, back everywhere. But for me, it's important. As you were saying, like the connectivity around like optimizing for mental health. We've got a lot of great green shoots. And if you're in others, the world has never been better. Maybe. But more, I'm not, I'm not Hobbesian. I don't think we're all nasty and brutish and life is terrible. But, um, you know, I have fears that we're doing certain things that are irreparable. So I, I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And if investing in a few companies helps, you know, either environmental causes or some of the soft social externalities that are being created or hard externalities, then I think I've done great. So that's what I'm about is trying to make the world a better place. And I'm not optimizing for how many Bitcoin I have in my portfolio. So maybe people like that too. I think money is a great enabler, but I will tell you first principles. I know we both have been successful. Every person I know, no matter how much, would happily take two. I'm not in the rat race. You know, I don't, I don't like to think. I'd certainly like more, but I don't let it. Anyway, money is just such a charge topic. It's so personal. And it's, it's something that you can't talk about with other people. You can't talk about it on podcast. Terrifying. But if, if I can optimize for something, it's making the world a better place. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good spot to end. Um, uh, we've been talking on the accelerator with Jeremy Baxt. He's the uh, director at, um, or, or, or a director at Azafran Capital Partners. Um, and uh, it's been a great um, tour of your, you know, your investing philosophy, your career, your, your family. Um, and um, I think it's hard not to like, uh, it's, it's hard not to say that you, it sounds like you have the most important things in the most important places in your life. So congrats on that. And um, thank you so much for fighting through our technical issues today and, um, and being a guest on the accelerator. We'd love to have you back. And I'd love to play golf with you out in the Hamptons. So I hope that we get a chance to do that. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a definite.
Well, thanks a lot, Jeremy, and we'll talk to you soon.